well, one of the biggest things we have to teach people, and it's a really hard one to grasp, is, is that you have to care about the people you work with. You don't have to like them. We all work with people that we don't like, right? But you have to care about them. And it's a really big deal when you're working in one department and you see somebody else in another department um, getting a hard time or something happened to them that, that's not fair. And a lot of people are like, hey, that's not my department, and they'll walk away. It's bridging that gap and being like, you know what? We work together. We don't work next to each other, but we work in the, for the same company. We're working for the same thing. And then that, when that person can come out of their department and stand up for somebody in another department, that's really where you're starting to break down those barriers. Um, the example we, a lot of us use these days are the grocery store, especially now that they're very um, boutique-ish. Even like, I mean, our local Harmons is very boutique-ish. It's, you go in and there's a bakery, there's a butcher, there's a produce person, there's a night crew, there's stockers, there's checkers, there, there's baggers. Well, in a, in a trade union, situation, the butchers would be in a union, the bakers would be in a union, the night stalkers would be in the union, the cashiers would be in a union. They'd all be, they could all be in the, a union, but they'd all be in a different union, um, all by their trade. But the way that we look at it is that everybody, from the janitor to the butcher to, to the person that um, you know, stocks the shelves, they're all in the same union, union because they're all working in the same industry. They're all there to make that industry go forward. Um, and that's kind of the big separation is that we think that there, there shouldn't be a, a distinction between what you're doing as long as you're, you're, moving, you're, you're moving the company forward, right? So, well, why, like, what problems do you have in your life? You know, paying bills, um, credit card debt, student loan debt is insane. Um, you know, all that is generating money for other people. You look at, you know, these big companies that are fighting increasing wages at all. And they're like, well, we, McDonald says, well, we can't, we can't keep opening stores if we have to pay this much money. But all the people making the money at McDonald's aren't the workers, they're, they're, they're not getting money, it's their investors, right? It's people who put in money and they get money and money and money without doing anything. Like we really think that the money should really be going down to the people that are doing the work. And it's, once you can kind of get people and you can talk to them, people start understanding like, oh, that's what you mean by this. And I think there's a really weird thing about clash consciousness. People don't realize that we're all workers. And I think that's one of the big issues and the, one of the big things that we've been fighting for a long time is to get people class conscious because people look down on fast food workers. And there's a lot of talk I, I see a lot of the times when people are, um, they're like, well, why would someone flipping burgers deserve that much money? I don't make that much money. Well, you deserve more money too. It's not just one section, but this is the section that's, that's being organized around this. It says in our preamble, we said, you know, we want to scribe on our banner, you know, abolition of the wage system. And people are just like, what does that even mean? Well, what it means is like, you should be getting more for your work. You should be compensated for what you're making, you know. to kind of do something interesting with what we've kind of learned with um, respective situations to labor and employment. We've all had different jobs around here. Um, so I wanted to kind of do, if we're going to do like the lightning round, we usually do like final thoughts. So I wanted to kind of see if everyone wanted to throw out like 
a job that they've had where they had, you know, certain types of issues. And then, um, you know, ask the, the, the two lawyers we got here, what, what kind of remedies you can pursue, uh, for your grievances at those types of jobs or how you would organize those types of your, your fellow employees in those types of jobs. If, uh, Daniel, you want to kick it off? Sure. Um, well, I've been involved in um, some um, efforts to unionize. Actually, in a campaign, we we won an NLRB election, but I, I won't talk about that. Actually, I'll ask a question about someone else who asked me to ask a question. So a friend and a comrade um, asked, uh, so she works for a consulting agency, and it's at-will employment. Um, and she's concerned that, uh, because of privacy issues with, uh, well, I won't go into the details, but she's concerned with some privacy issues, some benefits she's enjoying. Um, they're trying to change them in a way which she doesn't like. Uh, and she's afraid that maybe, you know, it'll be just enough of a pain in the, in the, in the boss's, um, neck that he'll just say, well, actually this isn't worth it. Goodbye. And so, um, the question was, in the situation of um, at-will employment, what can, I mean, there are a couple dimensions to this question, but what can a person do? How do they, how can they get security in their job? I mean, is this a, is this a issue of the different strata within the working class? It's, it's like a PMC issue or what, what can be done um, for security in a, in an at-will employment situation? Like, 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 for instance, intellectual, an intellectual laborer uh, who who works in a non-unionized workplace. I mean, is it purely at will? Because if it's purely at will, all you can do is basically try to use whatever value you bring in as leverage. But other than that, they can do whatever they want, right? I mean, it's kind of dire, but that's, I think, pretty much the reality. Now, if you can tie things up to something that they're prohibited from doing, then you have some leverage. Like if you can show that what they're doing is tied into some kind of like sex-based discrimination or something like that, but you would really have to look at employment law and see if they're violating any of that. But if they're not violating any of that and you don't have a collective bargaining agreement, maybe there's some state law stuff, but if it's purely at will, you literally don't have any leverage. So what you're saying is you'd have to look over those five criteria and really see if there's some discrimination going on or something in being terminated or yeah. disciplined or whatever. Se seven when you add the seven, age, age, age and, and disability. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, it's a, tough, uh, it's a tough road for the professional class, you know, and it, it can mean making some... Uh, intense uh, personal sacrifice you know and as a uh, person myself i was uh fortunate and when people use the word privilege constantly here it's a little it irks me a little bit but but my family for example we had one foot in the middle in the upper middle class uh world and that i grew up in Winnick, illinois and but we had one foot in a working class world because my father was a taxi driver before that my father was a uh, stone uh mason and laborer his father was a stone mason and uh the family business uh failed after the second world war and but i was schooled 
uh, with the upper middle class, I had the opportunity, certainly if I wanted to, to go to excellent uh, colleges and, and have excellent education. And then at the time, uh, that was in the throes of the Vietnam War. It was in the throes of the Civil Rights Movement. And I made a very conscious uh, decision that I would uh, uh, get in the streets with the people who were protesting the war because I felt strongly that it was immoral and, and heinous and uh, the Civil Rights Movement. And I was fortunate to have a lot of exemplary role models and uh, fortunate to belong to a generation that was the largest birth generation in the history of the nation. Uh, but for people in that position, it's a, it's a hard uh, road to hoe. And uh, uh, the way it worked for me is I worked in industry. I found a, a unionized job where I could make a living wage, not a lucrative wage. And I worked there for 20 years uh, organizing workers. I, I did things like I helped to uh, desegregate the skilled trades in the factory where I worked in suburban Chicago. And uh, then after about 20 years, I went back to school and I became an attorney. So uh, the bottom line is that your vote matters. So when you elect people who are hostile to employment rights, and they're not all Republicans, uh, when you elect people who don't uh, priority, prioritize em employment rights and labor rights, then that's the situation you find yourself in. Um, so all I can all I can tell tell you about this individual is they need to do some soul searching and decide if they're uh, committed to collective activity or if they're uh, committed to uh, their own their own interest. You know. So so what you're saying is uh, what you're saying is uh, short of organizing the workplace and developing a, a and unionizing. There is no real security short of just making sure you please the boss. And and operating in the political uh, environment as well. But um, there's a lot of ways to engage and struggle. We didn't have a chance to go over, and maybe we should have another uh, uh, session uh, discussing uh, various administrative agencies. We didn't have a chance to talk about wage and hour, which is, on, uh, which is subject to attack right now by this gig economy stuff where the wage and hour laws in the United States, the, the most uh, predominant ones called the Fair Labor Standards Act. There are a number of things that people can do at low cost in administrative agencies like the Department of Labor, the Illinois Department of Human Rights, the Equal Opportunity uh, Employment Commission um, that people can do, but they if they have a cherry job and if they need to earn uh, uh, high five-figure or six-figure income, then they're going to have to relinquish uh, all of the, the majority, if not all, of their autonomy. And their security. Yeah, and their security. That's just the fact of, uh, of living in the 21st century here. So you don't think there's a chance of organizing workplaces for, for um, highly paid intellectual workers? No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. But I, I think, um, as an example, you've got, uh, university uh, professors that that are organizing. You have uh, um, well, right you know, now, research adjuncts. You have have these other people organized. So you can certainly you can certainly do it. Uh, you have engineers. I remember reading years ago that the Teamsters even had some aerospace engineers organize. But um, you need to have a culture 
you need to have a collectivized culture. And so much of the contemporary American culture is about making you feel isolated and alone. And then I guess the upside of that is you feel special or you feel like there's an expression. Uh, uh, but uh, you like an anti, anti-Instagram culture. Yeah. Well, it's neoliberalism. Yeah. It's 30 years or 40 or whatever of neoliberalism. It, it is. Well, it's, it, it's not... It's not by chance that union rates dropped after 65, right? Because that's really when the neoliberals got together and said, we cannot allow this to continue or they will actually have control of branches of government, at which point we won't be able to do anything, right? That's when they were got afraid that the union movement, that the labor movement was going to be able to actually get legislation passed because they wanted it right not because it was a deal or no but because they had control of levers of government so that's when the neoliberals got Mm -hmm. together and systematically started destroying the labor movement you know you mean like powell and the powell memo and so forth yeah all of that i mean it's it's been a it's been a concerted effort at every level i mean like when people get hired for whole foods they have to sit through hours of anti-union videos mm-hmm. right Amazon when they too, get hired yeah. by walmart they have to watch these videos yeah, you know so, so like and people believe this nonsense i mean like the 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 uber and lyft drivers in california when the prop that just passed that prop they, they, they prop 22 that basically the law here is is that they are employees you know and and prop 22 basically made a carve out so that they're independent contractors they fully believed that they had more rights as independent contractors than as employees, which is completely false. But they believed that because $100 million was spent on miseducating them on that, right? And so we have that going on in our society for the last 40 years, right? Or 50 years, mm-hmm. right? So that, that we're seeing the results of that. The, the, we know for a fact that even non-union employees benefit from having stronger unions because, you know, the union will actually push for things that then other people have to give to their non-union employees, right? So as unions have lost power, everyone has gotten screwed. The rising right? tide and, lifts all boats. The, when the exactly. wages go up, I mean, when the union wages go up, the other there's pre- upward pressure. Mm-hmm. On on wages and when you analyze unions from purely economics, it's it's a uh, reduction in the labor supply. So unionization has the same effect as reducing the labor supply by dollar mm-hmm. amount. So we have to pay more when we have less supply. We got to pay more. So to pay workers more, um, there's a number, but there's a number of uh, and we could talk a long time there's a thing about arbitration arbitration actually emerged during the second world war and was a pre quote uh, pre quote quote for uh, uh the no strike pledge in the second world war and then after the second world war they made the no strike pledge permanent and made it Ill- illegal to strike during or most contracts forbid striking during the term of the contract so you only had a chance to uh, go on strike every four years or whatever. And then the invidious thing was they made consumer credit. So we were just talking earlier mm-hmm. in the show about uh, consumer credit being so important to everybody. Well, when the coal miners in West Virginia went on strike, they had uh, turnips and tomatoes and chickens walking around and stuff. They could subside without wage employment. Mm-hmm. They were not dependent on, on, uh, on wages because they weren't strung out on credit. So stringing people out on credit also helped to undermine 
the labor system because people can't afford to go on strike. And, and mm-hmm. we're asking the system to provide for us when, in fact, we need uh, collective uh, direct action. We need mass direct action I, if we're really going to change. Yeah. And if you're going to buy into, a, you know, just standard monetary sort of theory, credit also creates massive inflation, which then makes credit even more necessary. It's mm-hmm. a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because if people can borrow to buy a house, mm-hmm. then you can make the houses more expensive. Mm-hmm. And then you have to borrow more to buy the house. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden houses or college educations, for that matter, mm-hmm. start inflating based on the availability over the surplus cash that doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. But with fractional lending, you're basically pumping more and more and more money in. Yeah. I don't want to get into like an MMT issue about this, but if you buy in just into standard monetary theory, mm-hmm. the, the the increase in credit is also going to cause inflation, mm-hmm. but you keep wages down mm-hmm. or flat. And then that means everyone gets in and everyone who can't borrow at 0% gets impoverished and they have to pay more for things. So they have to borrow more. If you have a mortgage, you can't go on strike. If you own your house, you can go on strike. Right. Mm-hmm. So true. So true. So. All right. Well, Thaddeus, why don't you come back to your question about the workplace you raised? Before yeah. Um, I'm so, going to, I guess, unless, unless Marco has a job, he wants to talk about, I'll uh, make this the last point of discussion. Um, well, like, so it, it comes with two parts. So the employee employment issue part um, at Walmart. So we go in one day, uh, one second. Where am I at? I have a short story so, that I'll oh, tell. Hold on. So we go in one day and um, basically the management is saying that a group of us are being too loud in the break room. We all work nights. So there's really no um, customers there to hear us. Um, we were stocking shelves or working in the warehouse, you know, with shipping. And um, they were saying we were being too loud outside and we were being too loud in the break room you know, with other employees. So damned if you do, damned if you don't type of situation. And everyone in there was, they were, we were all black college students or of that age. So and, so what they were saying is the black people are loud. Well, whatever they were saying. Um, yeah. I mean, but for what would happen there talking about, um, you know, like at will employment, um, you know, there, they brought in all of us. There were about like 10 or 12 people that they brought in. And, um, they told us we were being too loud and then everyone seemed to be scared to say something because all of us, a lot of us are college students who are using this money to pay for college and to feed ourselves. And, you know, that's that's a big part of our future prospects. And uh, most people were afraid to say something. First person to stand up was this dude, Sean. Um, and then the second person to stand up, the only other person was me. And I was wondering, you know, with the at will employment, the funny thing about that is we were the two hardest working people there. Right. So we felt like we had some leverage, like we do our job well. And if you want to talk to us individually, come to us individually, because also we were two relatively quiet dudes. Right. I mean, we could get in on the fun, but for the most part, we were pretty calm guys. So we were like, why are you talking to all of us at once? This clearly seems like a discrimination issue. Right. So that seemed to be the leverage we had at will. But kind of to that point, um, Kind of one of the things that happened after that, but a little bit later, was that Sean switched to working in the warehouse. We were both stockers, and I switched to working maintenance. You know, this was one of the issues that went into that. So we kind of left those respective departments and went to other departments. And, um, you know, so the first issue was leveraging your employment status. Um, 
I think me and Sean kind of did that. And then the second part is there are all these different departments. And if we actually wanted to organize, because you could feel it in Walmart, that people were really receptive to like Marxist ideology. They really, they understood it. Like I would always tell another dude who worked there, you're, you're basically, you know, a Marxist. And this was before I was, right? And I was basically telling him like, that's, that's what you're saying. He was like, I don't, I don't care. You know, if that's what I am, that's what I am. You know, we should just be getting together to get, you know, more money. You know, we're not paid enough. And this idea that we can, you know, fight for a 50% raise based on our merit every year, that's not enough. You know, they keep on taking away our benefits. So, but, you know, that's not the same in every department. And that's definitely not the same when you're talking about people who work days and people who work nights and people who have been there longer because there was a stratification in Walmart based on benefits where some people were grandfathered into benefits that they would have to, you know, risk. And the younger people weren't grandfathered into those benefits. So there's kind of like two points of leverage that I wanted to like talk about is the leverage you have in at-will employment if you do perform your job well versus someone who, you know, what if they have a disability and they're not capable of performing to a certain degree or they have other priorities like children and they're not able to strike because of that. And then talking about the different strata of employee where there are different incentives to organize for labor based on, you know, your age, what benefits you get, and like um, even what shift you work on. You know, people don't want to lose that status and be put on nights. You know, like nighttime and every job I've worked at seem the most um, like receptive to organizing because there's really nothing to lose when you're already working nights and you're tired and at your wits end. But I'm wondering how you guys um, have experienced that and what you think about organizing those different strata and those different strategies. So that's a very long fact pattern that has a lot of different issues in it. Okay. (laughs) So, um, so, so for example, uh, let me see the issue when an interesting issue here, the guy who works really hard, the only leverage he has is the cost benefit analysis of management of how much of a pain in the ass he is versus what, how much he produces. That's it. That's the only le- real leverage you have. The moment you're more of a pain in the ass than the extra you produce, they can just get rid of you, right? Now, perversely, the disabled person, from a lawyer's point of view, has a lot more protection because mm. almost anything they do, you could be like, you fired him because he's disabled and they're going to be afraid of that, which then leads to the other perverse thing is, which is they're more likely to not hire someone who's disabled because mm. they know once they've hired him, mm-hmm. they're opening themselves up for a lawsuit. It's like so there's like a, that weird situation. Right. Now, from a lawyer point of view, I think they made a big mistake gathering all of you together to complain about the loudness because they've just turned you into a collective. And if you had said, well, we want to negotiate how loud we can be. Hmm. Then they have a labor issue there <laughs> that they wouldn't have if they went individually to you say, you're too loud. Right. Right. So that was a weird mistake. But I, I, you know, I would not have caught that back then, you right. know, I would not. so, so, so it's a hard, it's a weird thing to, to be able to catch. Right. But, you know, so you see, there's all these weird issues. Like that's why when people ask the lawyers questions, lawyers go, well, it depends because right. it just sort of, you just open a can of worms 
and there's a million different ways that it can go the, based on the facts and all the you know the, how what your laws you're going to apply and you know but anyway right. i'll let chris answer because he'll know better than i do i mean the most elemental would be to file a um an eeo charge that it's a, a culture-based race-based approach and it's based on the perception of uh black people loud talking and and uh Quick clarification. Based question. on that. What's an EEO? The, the equal uh, EEOC, uh, filing a charge with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Right. Thanks. In Illinois, uh, there are states that have both state and federal commissions. We have the Illinois Department of Human Rights. But every state has at least an EEOC, and many of them also have state agencies. And when you file in Illinois, you're considered jointly filed with both the IDHR, the Illinois Department of Human Rights, and the EEOC. So the easiest one would be a EEOC a charge based on race. When you mention the grandfathering of certain people with benefits, I think that raises a really interesting um, Fair Labor Standards Act uh, issue, and that would also ish, uh, raise an issue of were the people grandfathered in, were they more predominantly one protected class or another uh, um does everybody remember does anybody remember chris small chris small was this guy at the staten island amazon that walked out and was that that was based on a safety oh right uh protest and so it's kind of like if you're going down now that now i'm not speaking as a lawyer i'm speaking as a um as a socialist-minded person if you're going to go down, you know, then get the most bang for your buck in going down. So if you're going to, if you're going to go down, first of all, keep good uh, uh, record memorandum of what what people say and do. Second, publicize what's going on, and use alternative media and all this stuff. And Third, you know, file in every forum you can possibly file, and you can file a wage an hour claim that you're being forced to work through your break. There was some big Walmart litigation about about uh, break times and wage theft, and compound that with the EEO, compound that with uh, perceived disability. There's there there's a lot of creative ways to do it, but. Sometimes you got to take one for the team and and you go down and the best thing is to not not be silent and to uh and to uh engage in that collective uh direct action, you know. So uh lawyers can't give you the answer to every problem. Lawyers can say here's an option, but really um like I always say I follow I follow the people, you know, the, the old uh uh slogan that i love is is uh, from the new left era is when the people lead the leaders will follow so the people have to lead and we have to stand with the people and we have to stand in their struggles so um i look at uh, my law license as a tool in the toolbox you know i have uh, some other abilities you know hopefully and uh, and that's just one of them so uh but clearly you're you're in a leadership position that's why you're sitting here so, uh, you know, some of these things you got to do by the seat of your pants, but definitely um, letting uh, letting Walmart know that, uh, oh, I'll tell you a great thing about Walmart we don't talk about enough, and that's something Sanders 
talked about quite a bit is that, that the American taxpayers subsidize Walmart because Walmart people receive uh, uh, food stamps because they're not paid enough to uh, buy food. They receive uh, free school lunches. They refer, you know, all of this stuff that the, where the where the taxpayers subsidizing Walmart starvation wages. So that's something I would do. And if you were to pick it there while you're off hours. If you were like, when you're not at work, when you're not scheduled to be at work, if you were to pick it in front of Walmart, that would be protected activity under the uh, Labor Act. So if you're fired, let's say you and those uh, five guys or 10 guys that you had in a meeting. 12, I believe. 12 if, people? If, if, 10 to 12. If, I don't if you exactly. got out and pick it at Walmart the next day and you weren't scheduled, you got fired, you would have a very good unfair labor practice charge because nice. you were engaged in protected concerted activity nice so yeah. that, that that's the kind of advice that's you would have been useful. where where was the walmart um carbondale you would have been the carbondale walmart workers union you don't you don't have to be in the huh. afl or anything like that if you had picketed the next day not while you're at work but when you were not scheduled to work you got out there and picketed and had informational picketing that's protected activity. So, so there you go. So we worked it out. There's our little case. Yeah. Study. So as soon nice. as me and Sean stood up, we could have started picketing the next day, and we would have been absolutely. We would have been under the protection of labor law rather than under just protection at of will National employment. Labor Relations Act. Yeah. And if they fired you, which they would have, right? You go down and you file a ULP, and then mm. you, you give them something to think about. So um, his that's friend, how you fuck the boss. That's how you fuck the boss. That's a. That's true, yeah. So your friend working in what what industry did you say? Uh, consulting. So in consulting, if she found another qual person, qual qualitative research. If, if if she found another person and they started picketing, then they would be under labor rather than in, at will employment law. I mean, that's the world I'd, I'd love to it. see. Okay, nice. That, okay, <laughs> so let's just. You have to be careful though, because yeah. if they stick a management label on you, it gets kind of weird. Oh, right? there is like a weird issue with that. Okay. Like, so, so a lot of the times when, when people are trying to organize, they will start putting a management sticker on people so that mm -hmm. they can't vote on right. the unionization. Right, right. Like if you have someone, let's say it's like the meat department and he's kind of like the shift supervisor, but he's really just not really a manager. They'll just stick a, and the, but they know he's one of the people who are helping organize. They'll stick a management label on the guy mm -hmm. and they'll be like, you can't be involved in this because you're management. You're not. Marco, I mean, I don't know the specifics. Marco's that, touching on two very important things. So the one is what we refer to as the composition of the bargaining unit. So when we petition at Walmart, we say we want everybody in this job classification to be um, a part of the bargaining unit. And the management, and you will have administrative hearings about this, and it can go on for years. This is the downside of the in all our B process. So we'll say we want all the meat cutters in the bargaining unit and all of the uh, clerks and all of the people that come in at night and stock the thing. I don't know how many job titles. So that's why they have more and more broader job titles. When you go and you petition, you say, this is our bargaining unit, then the company's attorneys will come and they'll say, no, actually, Joe, uh, Daniel is a uh, meat, lead meat cutter supervisor, da-da-da-da-da. So that's called the composition of the bargaining unit. So they use departments in order to break up organizing. Th th they will carve out people to, to narrow the scope of the bargaining unit. Okay. The unit will always want a more expansive bargaining unit. The, the company will want a more uh, restricted, constricted bargaining unit. Or let's say we want to organize all the 
the the jewels in Chicago or all the um, um, uh, O'Reilly's auto parts. Okay, so we'll petition. We'll get some guys from O'Reilly's to sign a petition. We'll say we want all the O'Reilly's auto parts in the city of Chicago. And O'Reilly would say, no, actually, we got a sub-region there. It's just uh, in Wicker Park or it's just in one one place. So that's a battleground. It's called the composition of the bargaining unit. The other battleground that Marco uh, alluded to is that they will, they will, for purposes of overtime and the Fair Labor Standards Act, say that people are managerial or salaried, when in fact they do the same identical work as hourly employees. So it's a pretty well-known case. Um, and some of these also involve arbitration clauses to make it more convoluted. Waffle House was a case like that, where they have the guys flipping eggs at Waffle House, and they would take half of them and say, okay, you're management. And eventually, I believe that the uh, labor advocates won that, where they say, you got to be able to actually have the ability to discipline people. You got to have the ability to alter people's schedule. To be a real get, be to, a member of to, management. You have managerial responsibilities and stuff. So that's a battleground under the Fair Labor Standards Act. The composition of the bargaining unit is a battleground under the uh, NLRB. So you can't just call somebody a manager to divide up the workforce. They, they, there has to be a real difference. But, but, but backing up a second, though, um, about salary. So if the person in the question uh, I, I raised is receiving a salary, how would that bear on things? Well, a salary means that um, from an organizing you, you're, you're not entitled to time and a half after 40 hours a week. It would mean that you would not be entitled to the minimum break and lunch, which I think in Illinois, I don't know if it's a 20-minute uh, uh, paid lunch or a half an hour unpaid lunch, but there, there are there are specifications under Fair Labor Standards and under Illinois Wage an Hour also that that spell that out so, so, if so you, go ahead mark are, are there because i know are there like federal level things about these sort of like breaks on top because like i know that each state can kind of you know like talking about preemption and you know sort of occupying the field the, the federal government doesn't occupy the field in this stuff but whatever the state provides has to be at least as good as what the federal government Correct. says or it can be better Correct. So, so if the federal minimum wage is seven twenty-five, a state can have that, just not have a minimum wage, and the federal wage will prevail, or it can have a higher wage. And as you state, the same is true with hours and and breaks and stuff. But the the general benchmark for the uh, the wage and hour law is the Fair Labor Standards Act. It was revised in the Clinton era. It. Uh, defined the three exempt so so exemption under the fair labor standards act means that you don't receive overtime because you're not being paid on an hourly basis so the three bases is called executive administrative and managerial so executive uh means that you're in the chain of command that you are responsible for directing the activities of the workforce and therefore you are not paid uh by the hour you know, it was a funny joke. I used to work with uh, tech technicians or skilled trade guys, and they would they would always tell me, "I get paid for what I know, not what I do." <laughs> right. So, so, so executive is one is one exemption under the Fair Labor Standards Act. The other one is professional, which if you're an engineer, <laughs> or if you're a scientist, if you are a um, um, a lawyer. 
Uh, an attorney, yeah, an attorney. Uh, general counsel would be an example, corporate general counsel. If you were a uh, physician, uh, you would be considered um, under the professional and therefore be exempt from minimum wage and, and, and hour and maximum hours. So PMC falls under that. Yeah, and the third is administrative. And administrative means that you are working in such proximity to the executive that um, you're you're basically not being paid by the hour. Also, you're you're being paid to perform tasks, and um, and you're you're exempt for that reason. Like some days you work a lot, other days you might not hardly work at all. Mm-hmm. So um, those are the three major exemptions from the Fair Labor Standards Act. All right. So before before we move on, I just want to make this totally clear for the question the comrade asked. Uh, she, you know. The, doing qualitative research for a consulting firm, what the, what the advice there would be is if you're afraid of getting fired because you're pursuing, you know, some, some concern about your security or something, privacy in the workplace, um, raise a concern with a coworker, make sure that that's clear. It's somehow established. You've established this concern. And then if there's retaliation against you, then you can sort of counter retaliate and say that this was uh, not above board with respect to labor law. And make sure that they share the same title, correct? But if you want to be pragmatic, though, like, you know, you're probably, there's a good chance if it's annoying enough you will get fired and your life will be like dislocated right like so don't go don't think that you have some right. sort of immunity shield like you don't you no because no, they're counting don't. on you not suing and they're counting on you not being able to survive sure, while sure. you sue and you know like sure be aware of the reality of the material conditions that you're in yeah but i just meant to clarify not protect you from them to clarify because yeah. you suggested that if this person um or spoke with other people about it and then was um, let go, fired, terminated, then then that would actually be a case. Okay. There are some ways to vindicate an individual uh, employment contract. So this person's paid X amount a year. She's supposed to be a researcher, however she's employed. If you are, if you suffer a loss because of another em- employee's Interference, for example. Uh, lawyers use the term cause of action. Cause of action means there's a, there's a theoretical framework for a lawsuit. So there's a, co- a cause of action called tortious interference with contract or tortious interference with economic ex- expectancy. What this means is that if another employee uh, damages your relationship with the employer, on a false basis or an unmerited basis or on the basis of animus, you could possibly sue not your employer, but the other employee. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of a creative solution to a workplace uh, dispute where uh, the person's being injured uh, by the untrue statements also, that's a that would be a form of defamation. Also, if someone makes untrue statements about your work and impugns you to your employer, you may have a cause of action against that purpose. But you, this is getting pretty, pretty exotic in terms of the the um, practicality gotcha. of bringing those types of claims. But that's what that's available to the professional class people. That's that's not a, as often utilized by by more working more proletarianized type of 
occupations. Gotcha. All right. So Marco, why don't you, uh, you got a, you said you had a, a work story and then we'll- uh, it's, it's not, it, it's, it's a non-work story, but shows how having certain categorizations protects you. So uh, some years ago, um, someone I know got fired from a job at a, at a Whole Foods, right? Um, they, they had layoffs and they, you know, and, but I used to go to that Whole Foods a lot. And I was talking to some of the people there about, you know, like, it, it's funny because I had this weird feeling when the layoffs happened that the Whole Foods was cutting their workforce to be, uh, to be attractive for, for, to be bought out. Hmm. This is before Amazon bought them out. And I, and I talked to, and I knew a lot of the people at the Whole Foods and I talked to them and I said, you know, you, you guys have no, no protections. You know, you should organize, you should start a collective bargaining unit at this store. One of them, you know, total scab bastard went and talked to the manager of the store and told them that I had said that to like four or five of them that I knew because they were like, you know, and the guy one day I'm like at the store and all of a sudden the manager of the store comes to me and says that I am not allowed to be at that Whole Foods because I talked to people about organizing. But I wasn't an employee, so I didn't have any, you know, like I didn't really have a right to be telling them about organizing and I don't represent the union, right? So, so it was a kind of a weird, shocking moment because I had talked to people about it. You know, he, he, he came in like, that's how much attention these places pay to that, mm-hmm. that they will literally flag someone and make sure that they know who the person is to kick them out of the store for trying to even talk but about that it. That doesn't sound kosher. I mean, does, is that, is that, that, that can't be right. You know, it's interesting. Um, it's another interesting. I, I actually step. talked to the NLRB about it. I tried to get them to, they didn't do anything. The um, the no solicitation. So you see that on a parking uh, lot plaza. It will say no solicitation, et cetera. And it will be, it will give you an excuse to kick union organizers out of the parking uh-huh. lot, for example. And uh, the, the, the defense to it is if you allow, for example, you know, the Girl Scouts to sell cookies in the parking lot, then you have to allow the International Brotherhood of Teamsters in the parking lot to hand out stuff. If you allow the Crusade of Mercy or if you allow the van with the uh, free uh, flu shots or whatever, if you allow other people to solicit in your parking lot or the Little League, uh, you have to allow the labor organization to solicit in your parking lot. But I'm not sure what the uh, what the status would be of just a private citizen rousing the uh, the rank and file in, in the workplace. But we have so much to repair because uh, we didn't even touch on right to work laws. Uh, I which, wanted to uh, ask about that. Uh, which Illinois is not a right to work state, but even in non right to work states, there's been a uh, a union dissident um, movement. Uh, over the past 40 years, there's a thing called the National Right to Work Foundation, and they will provide lawyers for union dissidents who say, I don't want to pay dues because I don't agree with them donating to Bernie Sanders, or I don't want to pay dues because I'm a my religion forbids it, or uh, this is how the fair share movement came. So we need even closer, we need even more social cohesion. So, so much of this is really about social cohesion. So that's why we're hopeful 
when we see uh, this little ripple on the left from the Sanders uh, era and our, uh, our friends in the DSA, um, that we're hopeful that it will provide that social cohesion, that will provide opportunity to organize. But, but it's, it's very difficult without um, both the media. So, so we, we, going back to the historic, traditional NLRB process and the corporate campaign, in fact, you need both. You need to have a corporate campaign. You need to have, I would love, uh, this is helping inspire me to maybe do, do something about Goose Island because my, my friend was terminated from Goose Island um, to, uh, to begin to organize, you know, on both uh, levels, collective action and in the uh, administrative and, and legal uh, sphere. All right, you got a. You want to take the final word? Do you have a work story? Well, I think I already gave my my little soapbox. Yeah, I I, I was very privileged, privileged and very uh, blessed to be able to work uh, shoulder to shoulder with uh, people from all over the world. I was elected uh, president of a local union of four hundred people by uh, many people who were the sons and grandsons of sharecroppers and uh, immigrants and uh and uh was is my privilege to serve them for six years and uh since becoming an attorney i've managed to help people in foreclosures i've helped people with uh, uh employment rights and uh consumer rights lawsuits so um if anybody uh wants to contact me maybe you want to list that with the show or whatever but mm -hmm. uh you know it's really my priority I was trying to make a difference, and that's that's what I'm about. So, but you can. My, I I want to end on a word of encouragement because there's a lot of things you can do in these administrative settings that are not expensive. That you don't need to be an attorney. You just need to be persistent, and you need to be uh, uh, thick-skinned to uh, to uh, stand up to uh, to management and stand up to this corporate uh, uh, oligarchy that we live under. 